This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book that might be of interest is The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Recent years have seen an explosion of protest against police brutality and repression. The conversation about how to respond and improve policing has focused on accountability, diversity, training, and community relations. Unfortunately, these reforms will not produce results. The core of the problem must be addressed, and that is the nature of modern policing itself. Broken windows practices, the militarization of law enforcement, and the dramatic expansion of the role of police have created a mandate for officers that must be rolled back. This book shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, and even public safety. Alex Vitale demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. In contrast, there are places where the robust implementation of policing alternatives, such as legalization, restorative justice, and harm reduction, has led to reduction in crime, spending, and injustice. The best solution to bad policing may be an end to policing as we know it. The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Last week, I spoke to Aziz Rana about the lack of serious anti-imperialist politics across much of the American left. Today, my guest is Timothy Mitchell for the first of a two-part interview on the pivotal role played by coal and then oil in the history of capitalism, imperialism, and democracy. In this first episode, we'll talk about how the rise of coal made both industrial capitalism and newly powerful worker resistance possible, and how the shift to oil then facilitated the persistence of imperialism in a decolonizing world while thwarting worker organizing. On the next show, we'll discuss a lot more, including how oil companies in Western states made autocratic governments and conservative Islamists key partners in creating the very global order that we now find in such profound crisis. The discussion is informed by Mitchell's book, Carbon Democracy, Political Power in the Age of Oil, published in 2011 by Verso. I'm trying something new here with longer interviews by breaking it up into two parts. Let me know what you think. Before we get this started... We're in our spring fundraising drive at patreon.com slash the dig. We need your support to keep this going. And I'm asking you to right now, if you can hit pause and join the more than 800 listeners who are already supporting us. Our goal is to reach 1000 total supporters by the end of June for $10 a month. I'll send you Jacobin's ABCs of socialism For $20 or more, I have a bunch of other books that you can choose from, at the moment including Aziz Rana's Two Faces of American Freedom, Corey Robbins' The Reactionary Mind, and Melissa Jira Grant's Playing the Whore. 
I'm really grateful that you all make this show possible. And I get an email every time one of you donates, which reminds me in a really nice way that even though I'm sitting in the studio by myself, that ultimately you are out there listening and appreciating what we're doing. So please help us reach our goal at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Here's part one of my interview with Timothy Mitchell, a political theorist and historian of the Middle East at Columbia University, who, amongst many other things, is the author of Carbon Democracy and Rule of Experts, Egypt, Technopolitics, Modernity. Timothy Mitchell, welcome to The Dig. Thanks. It's great to be here. Your book's central argument is that fossil fuels helped create both the possibility of modern democracy and its limits. So before I get into a lot of specific historical questions, explain this overarching point that you make. I started writing the book, or at least thinking about it, after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, when there was a lot of discussion of the relationship between oil and democracy, uh, particularly in the Arab world. Somehow the undemocratic nature of uh, that region was associated with having lots of oil. And I found that argument very simplistic. And part of the problem was he didn't actually think about oil itself. And it also didn't think about the longer history of the relationship between uh, forms of energy and forms of democracy. So although the book has a lot to say about the Middle East, it actually addresses this question of oil and democracy by looking back uh, further into the past, over the previous 150 years or so, to understand uh, a wider relationship between the ways we have produced energy and the, and, and, and the kinds of opportunities that have resulted from that for creating um, more democratic societies or for setting limits to them. And one thing this enabled me to do was to tie the history of oil production in the Middle East actually directly to the history of uh, democracy in um, in Europe and the countries of the North. So I'd ha- I can take you into the um, specifics of the argument, but it was that relationship. It was to stop talking about um, uh, oil as simply a problem of oil-producing countries and think of it um, in relation to the wider world in which energy is used and how that shapes democracy. I want to talk about first the oil, the conventional oil scholarship, and then the conventional democracy scholarship. The oil scholarship you write misses the mark because it it focuses not so much on on the oil but rather on the money that oil makes and an an upshot of of that is that it tends to highlight the so-called oil curse to explain oil producing countries deviation from the the unmarked democratic norm as if they're these sort of curious basket cases um but you make it clear that the democratic west are oil states too tell me about the conventional approach on oil and why it's and why it's important to follow the oil instead of the money. Right. And the conventional approach uh, to thinking about the problem of oil and democracy in producer states um, like those of the Middle East uh, doesn't actually have anything to say about the oil. It just sees um, what it calls excess revenue. It's never clear um, what defines some kinds of 
um, revenue as excess rather than others, and that that revenue either distorts the economies of producer countries in some of the economic accounts or in the political science accounts, it distorts the politics by giving regimes spare cash to um, spend on suppressing dissent or something of that sort. Um, it's it's a very uh, simple account, and it's one that actually doesn't think about oil or energy itself. It's It's about a problem of somehow excess money, and it's not very convincing in my view. Uh, the the way to connect that to broader histories of democracy is, first of all, to go back actually before oil became the, the most important single source of, of, of energy um, to an age that was dominated by coal. Because surprisingly, if you think of a country like Britain in the 19th, early 20th century, Britain was, if you like, the, the Saudi Arabia of its time. It had this extraordinary uh, energy resource, um, coal rather than oil. And yet the possession of that energy resource, um, rather than somehow uh, being a curse or um, distorting some supposedly normal process of politics actually allowed um, working populations in Britain, and similar things happened elsewhere in Europe, um, to mount successful campaigns for more democratic forms of politics um, quite systematically from the 1880s through to the 1930s and again even after the Second World War. And it, it seemed to me that you couldn't understand the oil curse unless you related it to this rather different history in relation to uh, coal, partly because what then happens after that relatively um, successful uh, mass democratization in parts of Europe, uh, Europe finds itself partly de-democratized by the ability to turn to an alternative energy source um, in, in the case of oil. So as um, more and more oil became available after the Second World War as a supplement and an alternative to coal. It became easier to defeat the kinds of political movements that had been organized around the supply of energy. So there seemed to be something in the energy sources themselves, um, in the ways they were produced, distributed, controlled, that allowed one set of energy sources at one moment to seem to enable forms of mass democratization and in another moment both for producer countries and for consumer countries to be associated more with um, limits or reductions in the extent of democratic politics. It's almost as though the actual history has more to do with global political economy and imperialism than it does to do with the implicit argument that brown countries can't have expensive things. <laughs> Ab absolutely. Um, and, you know, one of the problems with the conventional approach to democracy, whether one's thinking about its absence um, in some kinds of countries or its miraculous appearance in others, is the lack of this kind of uh, technical and material history of how it came about. Um, uh, if if Part of the reason that the account of the oil curse jumps very quickly to says nothing about the oil and jumps very quickly to people having too much money and the distorting effects of money, it's precisely because they want to somehow at some level locate um, the explanation for political defects in 
uh, in the way people think ultimately. The 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 it becomes it becomes in the end a kind of uh, absence of the proper culture of politics because that's what the oil money is said to distort. And um, of course, the counterpart of that in conventional accounts of the rise of democratic forms of politics elsewhere um, is that uh, in many liberal accounts, it was it was a process of people gradually becoming more aware, becoming open to the culture of democratic life. And that's expressed in terms of concepts like civil society, tolerance, and so on, um, that I found equally unsatisfactory. And again, uh, not particularly relevant for thinking about the specific ways in which people were able to fight for more democratic forms of life using the opportunities offered by dependence on coal. An irony in the this conventional infantilizing and, and racist account of the oil curse is that it recapitulates the the very sort of imperialist and developmentalist orders that, that your book's about. <laughs> Yeah, um, because you know, one uh, part of 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 those kinds of understandings of the world was uh, always a kind of cultural superiority of the West and a um, historical view of the world where the West had achieved um, certain things, including um, uh, forms of mass democracy, which were then to be uh, exported to other parts of the world. And of course, this was uh, the fiction used in part to justify that invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three. That this was the opportunity finally for the United States and its allies to bring democracy and enlightenment to a world that had been cursed by its absence. So that runs right through standard accounts, um, uh, both both generally through history and and, and even in, um, in public discourse around things like uh, the war against Iraq. One more thing before we get into the, the history on, on the, you touched on it a little just now, this long-running scholarship on democracy and democratization that you're intervening in. The, the conventional account prioritizes norms and institutions on the one hand, and on the other, really, the idea of democracy, as if it's something that just has to be inculcated. But by contrast, you argue for a notion of what democracy can mean and what struggles over democratization are, which, you write, are struggles to define not just to define just what subjects are subject to popular debate and contestation. The standard accounts will will frame things very much in terms of a certain kind of enlightenment, a certain kind of institutional frame that allows enlightened discourse to prevail um, and, and, and things of that sort. I um, tend not to take that approach. I tend to think that people uh, pretty much everywhere are not in need of enlightenment by others. Um, they're knee, in need need of um, the mechanisms, the kind of apparatus that can allow their voice, which already exists, to be heard and force people to listen to it. And it's that apparatus, that mechanism, that how you build um, uh, such a world so that those voices do have to be heard and um, not democracy in the abstract, but specific demands over specific um, uh, ways of, of, of living a um, uh, 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 either a, a, a more prosperous or a less precarious form of life can get enforced. And that it, it's a kind of enforcement issue. It's a matter of having some way of having one's voice count um, 
not having sort of learning how to have a voice that, that matters. I'm currently reviewing uh, just such a conventional account for N plus one by a political scientist named Yasha Munk. I'm not sure if you've encountered him. I don't know the work, no. But uh, it's it's remarkable how much these sorts of accounts of democratization are are premised on really bad history, typically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's almost always a set of assumptions about how democracy came about elsewhere um, that has written out three quarters of the story. One of the specific things is often confusing um, the rise of forms of liberal constitutional government, um, which happened earlier, happened in the uh, course of the, in, in many cases, in, in, the, in the course of the um, 19th century, um, starting early in the 19th century, often with a series of um, demands for a more rule-bound um, kind of government and for a kind of government in which a, a broader part of the elite Property elite had a voice, and there was there was a form of constitutional liberal change in many parts of Europe through the course of the 19th century. I distinguish that from democracy, which comes later in almost every case um, in examples in the West, because of course that liberal constitutional government um, uh, was compatible with slavery, with uh, massive colonialism. Um, with uh, not giving um, the vote to women and with not giving it to a very large part of, of the, even the male population. So it's important, and often that is not obvious when people are thinking of the history of democracy in the West as models for elsewhere. And I'm much more interested in a series of um, developments that in different ways happened uh, in various coal-based um, places between about the 1880s and the mid-20th century, not the earlier history of constitutional forms. The conventional accounts typically frame democracy's history as as this redemptive arc whereby there was this really good idea that was unfortunately limited to, or that some people were unfortunately excluded from, and then our, and then this idea ultimately over time becomes more true to itself through mm-hmm. its through the expansion of the franchise and whatnot. Right, and to me, what's more interested in in how um, groups who were excluded uh, successfully find the tools to fight against that, but equally the ways in which um, more recently in 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 the the last five or six decades many of those gains are being lost again in a whole variety of ways, um, which I think the, the history of energy politics can also help us understand. Diving into the meat of your, your book, I want to talk about sabotage, which is a central concept that you use. You, you look at how it was the very process for extracting coal and transporting coal that allowed workers to leverage the power of sabotage to advance democratic struggles. And then the geography and methods of oil extraction and distribution by contrast, allowed oil companies and Western governments to successfully attack democratic struggles via sabotage. And there's a lot here, so I want to start with with coal, um, which on the one hand allows for this absolutely massive and just enormous increase in energy and thus in production and transportation that also allowed for this, you know, novel forms of intensive exploitation, but that also critically put these workers in in these positions in mines on railways on docks that gave them the power to shut the whole system down 
by disabling critical nodes. Lay out the political economic geography of coal and, and what you mean by sabotage. Right. We're talking, as I say, about the later 19th century. Of course, coal had started to be used widely um, before that. Um, its origins go back much earlier, and it's being used quite widely earlier in the 19th century um, with the rise of steam power. But it's being used alongside many other sources of energy, water power, um, uh, wood, uh, animal power and so on. Uh, by the late 19th century, it is becoming the dominant source of energy. Key changes when it starts to be used not only to drive steam power, but also to generate electricity. And then the electricity can um, uh, drive other forms of, of, of uses of energy. Um, and so in that period, in the, in the late 19th century, what one's got is this extraordinary quantity of energy, because the actual use of energy has increased in amount, but also its concentration in um, narrower and narrower channels. Before, when you had uh, multiple sources of energy, some of them like water or wood, renewable, others not, um, there were many, many sources of energy, and um, it was often very close to where it was being used. And the idea of somehow cutting off a supply of energy to an entire country uh, was just unthinkable politically. With coal, these enormous and ever larger quantities of energy start to uh, move along very narrow routes from the um, pit, uh, the coal pit, to the, to the, to the um, railway on which it's moved, to the docks, um, from the docks to the power stations and other centers where it's mostly consumed. And what happened was that groups of workers at these key points, the, um, the coal head, the, uh, the, the railway yard um, and, and the docks, realized that um, a relatively small groups of workers um, who were linked not so much by being part of a political movement or by sharing a political ideology, but rather linked by the fact that they were at different points in the movement of a single source of energy, could, by withdrawing their labor or other forms of what came to be called sabotage, shut down the energy supply effectively to an entire country. And this was the first time that it was possible to shut down production in a country as a whole. And it became to be known as the power of the general strike. And general strike didn't mean everybody in the country um, going on strike. It tended historically to mean uh, this triple alliance of coal workers, dock workers, and railway workers. They came to call it sabotage. The word was new around the uh, beginning of the 20th century. It hadn't actually yet been used in military circumstances. It didn't have the connotations it had today of sort of blowing things up. It meant actually sort of slowing things down, interrupting things, finding some small key point in a process where a slight delay or interruption or blockage would somehow disrupt an entire system. And uh, that was what these um, uh, the, these new networks of energy made possible this this relatively simple act of disruption that threatened to shut down a country's entire productive life. Now, general strikes themselves were relatively rare, although they did happen from the 1880s onwards in Germany, in France, in Britain, in other countries that had um, begun to depend on enormous amounts of coal. 
And, but just as important was the threat of this disruption. And it was in response to that threat that one finds a whole series of radical changes, this change from a kind of liberal constitutional form of government in many cases to, um, to much more um, developed forms of, of mass democracy in which the vote is extended uh, right across the working population. It's extended to women a little later, um, partly to as it happens to sort of try and dilute this power of, of, of working men, or so people thought. Um, and um, with that power, either the threat or the actual use, um, there's a fundamental change in the conditions of collective life. Um, it's the origins of what we think of as um, the basic forms of social democracy, where for the first time, um, people uh, win the guarantee of things like um, a retirement pension in old age, um, uh, provision of basic health care, right to education for their children, um, uh, accident insurance in case they are injured at work, and all the other things that become the normal protections against the extreme precarity of of, of working life. And that's a fundamental change. And it, it, it's a power of sabotage that um, uh, is called that at first. The word then takes on these military connotations and it's not used, but in some ways we can sort of reappropriate to talk about that ability to um, decisively interrupt some process so as to make effective political demands that, as I say, were not, th these were not new. People have always uh, looked for ways to produce a less precarious and um, uh, a form of life. But for the first time on a mass scale, uh, since the rise of the industrial age, they started to be radically effective. You write that in the in the late nineteenth century that many on the left saw the general strike as quote an anarchist tactic that should not take the place of organized political action. And even Rosa Luxemburg, for a time, argued that Belgium's nineteen o two general strike only worked because of the country's geographic concentration. Of, of industry, but Luxembourg obviously soon changed her mind. To what degree did the political economy of coal and the power of sabotage that that accorded to workers force Marxists to change or update their analysis? I think you see that. You see that in Luxembourg and others and um, uh, events in Russia, the revolution of 1906. Um, uh, are quite remarkable. We can talk about that in a moment, but of course also Belgium, what happens in Germany, what happens um, uh, elsewhere. I think in some ways what's interesting, and, and I'm not a scholar of, 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 of debates in, in, in Marxist theory in that period, though I know enough to, to see the influence and in the book quote um, Luxembourg and others to see how they're taking notice and trying to make sense of this sudden new power that seems to be appearing everywhere um, in Central Europe, in Russia, and elsewhere. Um, and that doesn't seem to have needed to wait for some spread of mass consciousness. Um, as I say, the, perhaps that was always there. What's, what's spread is the ability to build these effective apparatuses of making demands out of um, these connections among the forms of energy supply. I think in some ways what's more interesting is the reaction on the other side, on the right, because I think one can see um, in the interwar period 
a very clear understanding that whatever else may be happening, um, and even as late as say people writing in 1945, capitalism has ended. Um, so um, uh, writers like the economist Joseph Schumpeter, um, somebody actually on the left rather than right, um, uh, Karl Polanyi, many others looking at the world as it has been transformed in the interwar period say, with the rise of these governments that have had to become attentive to the mass demands that are being voiced by uh, these, these key alliances of workers, um, whatever the new world is that's being built, it's not capitalism. Um, as it happens after the Second World War, uh, things take a different turn, which we can talk about. But one of the things that happens is simply uh, many of those changes remain, but people think for ideological reasons, it's easier to just keep calling it capitalism than to realize how fundamentally things have changed between, say, the 1880s and the, and, and, and the interwar period. Moving on to what, what happens next, the shift to oil was explicitly part of the strategy to um, repress labor because it shifted the power of, of sabotage from workers to corporations and nation states who exploited key differences in the way that oil was produced and transported. And I want to quote from you here. You write, Whereas the movement of coal tended to follow dendritic networks with branches at each end but a single main channel, creating potential choke points at several junctures, oil flowed along networks that often have the properties of a grid, like an electricity network, where there is more than one possible path, and the flow of energy can switch to avoid blockages or overcome breakdowns. What, what was, explain what was new about the way that oil production and distribution were organized and how those changes were exploited. First, mention some things that were the same. Um, as an oil industry begins to develop, and I, I concentrate mostly on the case of, of the Middle East, um, beginning in the 20s and uh, 30s, and then in the period after the Second World War, you have workers trying to do very similar things to what was done by coal workers in the West, to start making demands, often first quite locally, about housing conditions, employment conditions, um, and then to try and use their critical place in an energy process to make um, uh, much more far-reaching de demands. So Iraqi workers in the 1930s, Iranian workers in the same period, uh, Saudi and other Gulf workers in the 1940s and the 1950s, um, wave after wave of political strikes, making demands partly over the conditions of labor and the precariousness of their lives, but also demanding, in the case of Saudi workers, um, political constitutions, for example, and similar demands uh, in Iran and Iraq, also over the ownership of the oil. Um, but those kinds of um, strikes and um, political demands turn out to be um, easier to defeat. Um, not that there aren't some, some, some quite violent political struggles in places, um, but it doesn't prove possible for um, oil workers, even as they connect their demands one group to another, to have this same ability to shut down 
um, uh, energy systems. And there are a number of reasons for that. But the place I start looking is actually in the the, the material properties of the two forms of energy. With oil, um, it's a liquid and it comes out of the ground initially under its own force. So you don't have to send a workforce underground. The workforce is smaller, it stays on the surface, it's therefore under supervision, more easily controlled by management. Um, and then as a liquid, oil can be uh, pumped in pipelines rather than moved uh, by uh, rail. And that uh, pipelines, although they could be sabotaged, were on the whole uh, simpler, less complex technical devices than railways, and they were much more difficult to interrupt. Uh, and then once it gets to the terminal on the uh, on the coast, it's moved by tanker. Um, tankers, unlike um, rail transport for coal, um, uh, again, are harder to disrupt the movement of. Their labor forces are usually not unionized. They, they, they move under international flags with non-unionized workforces um, at sea. And um, they're moving on um, moving on water rather than on fixed route by rail, so it's harder to interrupt uh, the the way in which energy moves from one point to another. If there's a strike at a particular port, the tanker can move and unload at a different port, and so on. So in all those ways, the the fluidity of oil compared to coal, the um, the way it comes out of the ground um, and the way it's transported, just made it far more difficult to construct those kinds of apparatuses of sabotage that have been possible with coal. The other thing, of course, is that oil came second. Um, it was initially um, produced as a supplement and alternative for oil. It was often burned in, in um, uh, ships as a form of fuel, just directly converting steam-driven um, uh, coal-fired steam turbines to, to oil-fired and so on. Um, so it came second. It was an alternative, and it was available as an alternative. Um, so the the very fact that one had a second source of energy was already diversifying the possibilities for those who depended on energy um, to uh, to uh, avoid the kinds of interruptions that one was subject to. So one sees this, for example, when Winston Churchill famously, um, on the eve of World War One and just after it is um, uh, arguing for the British Navy to complete a conversion from coal um, to oil, even though coal is in some ways a much denser source of energy that can drive ships more quickly. One of his arguments is that if we get oil from places like Iran, where he wanted the British government to take over new oil fields, um, we won't be subject to the political demands of the coal miners of South Wales. Um, so there was this very clear sense that in diversifying your source of energy, um, you, you were freeing yourself from the kinds of constraints that you've been subject to when you were dependent on just one source. And in addition to that, because you were going from South Wales all the way to Iran, you were, of course, going to get your energy a long way from where it was going to be used with coal, with industrialization with coal. Those energy networks um, were relatively short in, in extent. Most coal was used relatively close to um, where it was produced. And so, of course, industrialization tended to have occurred in regions that were close to coal fields, mostly. Um, and whereas oil, because oil came second, it actually became available elsewhere where oil happened to be. Um, 
a long way from the sites of industrialization. So the kinds of networks that might connect to the producers of oil, say in, in, in Iraq or Iran, to the users of oil, typically in Europe, were very, very long, very difficult to coordinate along politically um, because of those new, new distances. And that exactly was what Churchill was saying. We will not be subject to the political demands of the coal miners of South Wales. We'll be getting our oil from Iran, where, for a variety of reasons, political demands will be easier to police. And you write that oil's kind of intrinsic properties and the way that that allowed for its distribution was leveraged quite early by employers against workers. You you say that in right that in Pennsylvania in the 1860s, the first pipelines were introduced to undermine Teamsters who transported oil by the barrel to rail depots and horse-drawn wagons. Yeah, you see that um, very early on um, with oil. Um, once um, once it becomes um, particularly where it's being produced, um, as it were, relatively closer to sites of industrial production, um, as in the US or to some extent in in the Russian Empire early on. Um, And therefore, the threat of unionization and disruption is is closer. Very quickly, the advantages of its liquid properties are realized that you don't have to transport it in wagons, which have these Teamsters, the original Teamsters who um, uh, drive the wagons. You can build pipelines um, originally out of wood, but then pretty pretty soon out of uh, out of steel um uh that uh, are much easier to control don't involve so much opportunity for workers to disrupt you find the same thing for example with um oil in the russian empire baku on the caspian sea um in the caucasus is one of the world's largest sites of oil production in the early 20th century and um uh, a lot of that oil is used, um, is shipped across up the Caspian and up the river systems of, of Russia to be used to, in Russian industry, but it's also moved by pipeline. And again, there are the advantages of pipelines, in this case, to get it out to, from the Caspian across to the Black Sea are very rapidly realized. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. And by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Police, a Field Guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. It doesn't take firsthand experience to learn the meaning of pain compliance or rough ride. Police, a Field Guide is an illustrated handbook to the methods, mythologies, and history that animate today's police. It is a survival manual for encounters with cops and police logic, whether it arrives in the shape of officer-friendly, tasers, curfews, non-compliance, or reformist discourses about so-called bad apples. In a series of short chapters, each focusing on a single term, such as the beat, order, badge, throwdown weapon, and much more, authors David Correa and Tyler Wall present a guide that reinvents and demystifies the language of policing in order to better prepare activists and anyone with an open mind on one of the key issues of our time, police brutality. In doing so, they begin to chart a future free of this violence and of police. Police, a field guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. Out now from Verso Books.
I want to introduce a question that I think we'll probably return to in different forums a few times, which is the question of how technology relates to particular political economic forms. And you write that the very properties of oil as compared to coal, oil's, quote, fluidity and relative lightness, played played an important role, but that it wasn't just entirely technologically determined either. It was also political and contingent. And an example of this contingency that, that you write about are the oil workers in Baku who um, launched the Russian Revolution of 1905. Mm-hmm. But, but you write that while the oil workers' labor mobilization would ultimately prove somewhat exceptional, the way that it would was crushed would become pretty normal that uh, the Russian imperial government used ethnic divisions to break the struggle by way of sectarian violence. It, explain the, the role played by oil and its related technologies and what other causal factors are, are residual and, and contingent, how, how the, that issue of to what degree technology is, is determinative and to what degree things are left open to, to contestation and, I don't know, human choice. I don't want to suggest any of this is is a kind of technological determinism. What I'm trying to do is to bring this history of technical processes into the history of democracy, Um, uh, not to sort of add it as one more factor that we ought to think about, or even as the decisive factor, but rather say that the object we are thinking about, the kind of process we are thinking about, the the successful construction of an effective political agency that can make demands is something that has this technical aspect to it. Um, uh, if, uh, if, If a group of workers are able to successfully make uh, political demands, it is the assembling of a demand-making machine out of uh, parts that are um, partly technical that I want to understand, not not to say that, oh, they did this because oil made them do it or coal allowed them to do it or so on. So it's sort of actually getting a part and, and looking closely about what we mean by the possibility of political action and how political action is is assembled out of diverse things that are partly technical, partly political, partly um, uh, human, partly uh, based in energy forms and so on. Um, that that is is what I'm trying to do in this work. So um, in the the case of of Baku is in in, in the Russian Empire um, in the Caucasus is an interesting one because it's a sort of hybrid of two different kinds. Um, to say it's one of the early sites of very major oil production, um, one of the biggest sites in the world uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. But in a way, the the role that um, the oil of Baku, uh, of course today it would be Azerbaijan, um, is playing in 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 Russia, is is in some ways more similar to that of the the role that coal is playing in Europe at the time. It is the dominant source of energy. Um, Russian industry depends far more on oil than on coal. Russian locomotives on the rail system are fired by coal 
sorry, oil rather than coal. Russian engineers have developed ways of atomizing oil so it can be um, sprayed and used as a in a combustion system to drive um, uh, steam engines and they get steam turbines. So in all kinds of ways, um, oil in Russia is being used like coal and is directly tied into an industrial system, uh, as opposed to the sort of great distances that open up elsewhere between uh, energy production and industry with Middle East oil being used in Europe, for example, later on. So the fact that it's a sort of in-between of the two kinds of cases allows one to get away from any simple energy determinism, you know, tell me what kind of energy you have and I'll tell you what kinds of politics you have. Um, and, and indeed to look at all these different ways, how is, how is the energy produced and moved? To what extent is it the sole source of energy rather than a supplementary one? How far is it from the sites where it's employed and so on? Um, but of course, this still is the periphery of the Russian empire in the Caucasus. And one of the things you see happening there um, which again is a little different from the coal fields of Northern Europe, is that um, against the threat of the Russian Revolution in 1905-1906, one of the things that um, government is able to do is try and transform uh, political contestation into um, uh, forms of ethnic uh, rivalry and to exploit the fact that um, uh, the oil industry has been built on a very ethnically divided labor force. Um, which using, is a theme that will come up time and again in your which book and, and throughout again, this interview. Again, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, it's interesting to think. I mean, in fact, the main workforce in, in, in Russia was Iranian. And what happens after 1906 is that Iranian oil uh, oil workers, the, the industry is pretty much shut down and is dead for, for largely for a decade or more. And um, uh, those Iranian oil workers all go home to Iran. And in 1907, they became become an element in the 1907 Iranian revolution, the so-called constitutional revolution of 1907 in Iran. So there are connections immediately there with Middle East history that um, are, are of interest. But uh, but that's the, the particular interest in Baku for the for the book. And concretely, the way that the Russian government crushes the uprising in in Baku is by exploiting um, Azeri enmity against ethnic Armenians. Is that right? It works. Um, there's a, there's a there's an ethnic um, enmity that it exacerbates um, between Russians or Georgians against Armenians. There's also um, uh, an ethnic religious one against Muslim populations, the Persians in particular, and so on. And it happens, um, you know, in multiple ways. But um, part of the point is that when these um, oil industries coming to being in the uh, more diverse, more, to use a modern word, multicultural um, peripheries of empires, uh, one sees this tendency to sort of build workforces around ethnic divisions. They're easier to please. There's, there's you know, lots have been written about the sort of ethnic division of labor and the way in which it works historically in the organizing and dividing of labor forces. And you see that very clearly in the case of Baku. I want to turn to the, the Middle East now, which is, of course, a huge part of this history that you write. What do conventional accounts of the region's oil history 
as portrayed, for example, in the book The Prize, what do they portray and where do they go wrong? You write that it wasn't so much about the control of oil as people, I think, left, right and center tend to think, but rather a matter of controlling and limiting its supply. What did Western governments and corporations see in Middle Eastern oil and what was their goal? Right. So you mentioned Daniel Jurgen's book, um, The Prize, which is still the most widely read uh, magisterial history of the oil industry across the 20th century. And it's a very well-written um, book that is, is is wonderful to read, but it reproduces a certain way of understanding the history of oil in the Middle East that one sees in almost every account one comes across. Um, it's a story of... Um, uh, white European and American pioneers um, trudging across barren deserts and mountains, looking for this uh, this uh, this um, oil to discover, and then having discovered it, building um, heroically the uh, the the industry and the corporations that um, took the oil out of the ground and made it available to civilization. And of course, with that goes a view much more widely found in in accounts of oil right through to to the Iraq war and beyond which is that the problem they face is that the oil is is scarce and one's got to grab it as soon as one can find it and that having grabbed it one's got to secure it against others who might want to take it away from you and so with that comes a whole language of security of national security and i think almost every part of that story is wrong uh and i look in some detail at, at the how oil was actually first um uh being produced in in iran iraq in egypt and in in, in the gulf um it, the first thing is that um throughout almost all the 20th century um the problem with oil in the middle east wasn't how to find it and how to secure it it was that there was too much of it um in some places in iran iraq and even in egypt it was known just to pour out of the ground um it wasn't necessarily that hard to find at least in in initial amounts but even as um, because these new... companies were trying to protect oligopoly cartels arrangements basically right here's the thing about um oil uh, and again, it's an important difference from coal. Um, coal um, was found very widely across Europe, North America, and other places, and um, but was too expensive to transport very far. So it would tend to be used fairly close um, to where it was needed. There were exceptions. You would need coaling stations around the world for steamships, but most coal was used relatively close to where it was um, uh, found. Oil um, was found in relatively few places uh, around the world, uh, the Middle East being a major location. Um, but once you'd found it, um, you could sell it you could it was light enough and cheap enough to transport because of its liquid form that you could use it almost anywhere so there were two consequences to that one was that um uh, a handful of companies could imagine the possibility of actually taking control of every significant site of oil production everywhere in the world. Now, it's unthinkable with coal um, because of the diversity of places it was found and the difficulty in moving it. But with oil, 
um, it so happened that very early on in the early 20th century, six or eight companies begin to establish a system where they take control of every significant site of oil production in the world. And it's um, uh, an oligopoly situation that arises very quickly. And it doesn't arise very quickly because um, somehow with oil, uh, you automatically get rich. It wasn't the case. It arose because you could make extraordinary profits if you could organize it as an oligopoly, as a system controlled either at the production site or the distribution site or whatever by very few companies. And of course, famously, it was the Rockefellers who first organized this initially in North America and Europe um, and then attempted to spread their monopoly around the world. And then they were challenged by a handful of new European companies, what became later on known as BP and Shell and Total and so on. And Rockefeller's just to give them their modern names, of course, the, the Rockefeller companies essentially became Exxon and Mobil, or today Exxon Mobil. Um, Securing those those profits required restricting supply to drive up price. Right. So you've got this energy that, um, on the one hand, is is available only at very certain places around the world. Uh, but on the other hand, is enormously cheap to produce. So there are two alternatives. Either it's so cheap that you can't make much money out of it and it'll just be sold by local producers who will distribute it and you know add on a little bit of profit. Or because it's unusual, geographic distribution um, allows the possibility of monopoly, you could monopolize it and actually sell it many, many times its cost of production. So, and, and of course, that's what begins to happen. Um, once you can do that, then um, the threat you face is not that you might run out of oil, um, that you might not be able to find more oil, more oil, is that other people, rivals, might start up production next door or in the next country. And so understanding the history of oil production, its development over the first 50, 60, 70 years of the 20th century in the Middle East, it's about not um, what heroic acts can we do to discover and find and expand oil, but how can we limit its production? How can we find a few key sites, monopolize those, um, restrict production from them so that there's always somewhat of a shortage and we can uh, charge higher and higher prices, and prevent its development at other sites. And that's that's essentially what happens across the whole Arab world in the course. It's a system put in place early in the 20th century, and it lasts through to the 1960s and 70s. So the, the problem is for European and American oil companies, or I guess maybe more European initially, is that this oil exists on other people's land, which brings us to imperialism. And control of oil is often seen, even by critics, as having been a strategic in, a strategic state interest for, for Western powers. But you argue that this interest shouldn't be taken as a given fact, that it's something that oil companies actively worked to create and sell to governments. I, explain this and how the early history of of oil in the Middle East, how that took place within this imperial context. 
much of this oil uh, is in um, different parts of the Arab world and uh, the beginning of the 20th century, uh, much of the Arab world is still part of the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Um, and um, the other site is right next door in, in Iran. Um, so um, there's different strategies in, in relation to each of those two countries um, uh, and the oil companies at work are um, relatively few, um, mostly European. The American oil companies get a, an interested too. Um, so um, the, the key agreement is made um, with the Ottoman government right on the eve of the First World War um, between a number of oil companies and the government in Istanbul, essentially to give these companies a monopoly of the whole empire. The empire then collapses and um, uh, somehow by a sort of legal sleight of hand, that agreement is considered to survive the end of the empire in the post-war period and to govern oil production in the successor states. And those successor states are what become um, Iraq, Syria, Palestine, um, Lebanon, Jordan, and eventually Saudi Arabia and the smaller Gulf states. So that agreement um, uh, is an agreement among these uh, monopolizing oil companies that they will not develop oil anywhere across the Middle East um, uh, except in agreement with one another according to quotas um, that will limit the supply and maximize the price they can charge. So um, the one exception, the area that isn't under this agreement is Iran, but Iran is under the control of the company that becomes BP, and BP is actually a major partner in the agreement covering the Arab countries. So you've got put in place this uh, extraordinary system of monopoly right across um, the region. And so what you see happening in the interwar years is um, a modest amount of development of oil in one or two sites, uh, Iran, uh, for example, and um, a little bit in Iraq. Elsewhere, Saudi Arabia, for example, even though oil is discovered in uh, the early 1930s, effectively no oil is, is produced of any significance um, until after the Second World War. Even in Iraq, where oil is produced, um, the British companies, BP, that's controlling production there, what becomes BP, they're deliberately drilling shallow wells so as not to find much oil. And if they do find oil, they're often spiking the well and not letting on that they've found it because they want the oil just to come out at a rate that is low enough to maintain very high prices. So the story we have of heroic discovery and um, a source so strategic that um, you, you, you have to do everything you can to guarantee its supply is actually happening very, very differently. Um, if you like to use my earlier term, it's the oil companies who are now doing the sabotage. They are strategically cutting off or interrupting the supply of oil, not in support of um, worker demands or anything um, democratic, but rather in support of maintaining uh, prices for oil that are many, many times the cost of production. What are the imperial powers doing to support the oil companies and why are they are they doing it? Is it in the the 
interest of of empire or of the corporations or or both and neither um it, it's a bit of everything um and it depends a little bit from country to country so uh, in in the in the case of uh, iran for example the country is not uh uh, formally colonized by any of the imperial powers. There are troops that occupy it um, uh, during the war, and Britain and Russia, um, and the government is in, under enormous pressure from those two powers um, and related to its oil resources. And Britain is um, sending in soldiers from India. Yes, so um, uh, Iran, of course, is at that point, this is prior to the partition of India, Iran shares a border with India. And so when um, when Britain needs um, military forces anywhere in this region, including to invade Iraq during the First World War, the bulk of the forces come from India, not from Europe. Um, that's been the case even back when Britain um, invaded Egypt in 1882 and established its colony there. So India is, is important to all this. Um, but uh, elsewhere in, in Iraq, for example, there's a little bit more of a tension um, between um, the British imperial control and, um, and the interests of the oil companies. Um, the British, after the First World War, as they occupy um, these areas of the Ottoman, of the old Ottoman Empire, and uh, divide it up into these separate states and establish um, governments under their control, they have an interest in the funding and the stability of those governments because at that point, imperial powers like Britain are finding empire very expensive and they want to cut costs. And one way to cut costs is to make sure that the local governments have the resources to do um, the, the policing and the state building that um, they want them to do. Whereas the interest of the oil companies is to, in many cases, minimize oil production, just enough to sort of keep their rights in place and to pay the local government as little as possible for the right to produce that oil. So uh, sometimes you find the British government actually split between the interests of the oil company and the interests of the um, client state that they're trying to help organize and build. And that uh, that conflict unfolds differently in, in each case and um, with, with slightly different dynamics over um, each uh, decade. So, of course, for the oil companies, what's absolutely critical is that the imperial powers are there in some form or another, either directly occupying the country or controlling and influencing its government. Um, but that doesn't mean that the imperial powers are simply doing the bidding of the oil companies once they're there. They've got other interests of their own in terms of cost cutting, stability, uh, and so on. Hi, this is Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig. As you know, the Dig is an essential podcast doing critical work and shaping the meaning of what the left can be today. It's my favorite podcast, and you should support it by donating at patreon.com. Hello, this is Daniel Denver, host of the show that you are listening to. The Dig has launched its spring fundraising drive, and we're aiming to hit at least 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash the dig by the end of June. We don't paywall our shows, i.e. we give them to you for free. And so we depend on your support to keep this thing running smoothly. That said, we do have cool stuff to send those of you who do donate. Contribute $10 or more a month, and I will mail you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. 
$20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books by Dig Guests and other great left-wing authors put out by Verso and other publishers. And that's not it. I just started a weekly newsletter for everyone donating at least $5, which, amongst other things, offers ideas for future reading from me and from my guests. Please take a quick moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. We can't do this without you, so please and thank you. And back to the show. Arab nationalism and other forms of resistance obviously quickly poses a, a challenge to the control of Western imperial powers and oil companies. And I want to ask you about what those early movements looked like and the the methods that the imperial powers and oil companies used to respond. One really fascinating thing that I had no clue about that, that you write, write on is that the very notion of, of self-determination, which is often misremembered as this liberationist idea put forth by Woodrow Wilson was actually had its origins in a project to maintain imperial dominance. Right. I I somehow work in a little history of um, Woodrow Wilson, his 14 points and so on, partly because I am looking in some of the chapters of the book at how this um, modern state order in the Arab world came into being after the First World War. And in most accounts, it's associated with um, the peace conference at the end of the First World War and Woodrow Wilson's um, support for a principle of self-determination and uh, the the very partial and failed way in that promise that that promise was fulfilled in the case of the Arab world because um, although independent or quasi-independent states were um, established or recognized across the region, they remained under um, significant colonial control um, in the period after the war, um, largely by Britain and France. And uh, but the, one of the things I want to show is that um, you know Woodrow Wilson didn't really um, significantly oppose that. So, for example, when an Egyptian delegation came to the peace, Paris Peace Conference and said, no, no, we're not going to have continued British occupation of Egypt, we're going to have um, uh, this independence um, where that's been promised, uh, Woodrow Wilson refused to support them. Um, and I think it's important to understand where the idea came from. And it's actually got two kinds of genealogies. One is actually... And it's a really... Uh, I just want to hi- hi- highlight how crazy the latter genealogy you're going to uh, go over is. It, total, it totally floor, floored me. <laughs> the left in Europe has become highly critical of imperialism, of the idea that these... And, and particularly uh, what it has been doing in Africa, the, the, the Congo crisis, um, the genocide that has occurred in Congo and that's come to the attention of the European left in the in the decade before the First World War, um, the South African wars before that and so on. There's a mounting left critique of imperialism and, and um, the principle of self-determination from a left perspective was, was articulated in that context. It was also taken up by Lenin, 
um, and following the Russian Revolution in in in, in 1917, and at the um, uh, as as Lenin and the Bolsheviks withdraw Russia from the war, they start articulating a principle of self-determination. Um, and then there's the South uh, African story. Then there's a whole uh, South African part of it because there's been a, there's, there's been the, 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 the South African series of wars in South Africa um, between the British and the Afrikaner settlers and, uh, um, uh, and and a whole sort of emergence of a new form of South African politics in which the notion that um, self-determination is a kind of a, a way of solving the problems of rights of different racial groups uh, is articulated there. So uh, there's also this alternative sort of colonial understanding of self-determination as a way of saying that each group um, can have some say in its future. You know, it will not form uh, a, a sort of unified system of political rights or form of democratic politics, but rather um, there will be some way in which each group is allowed to tell us who they want to be ruled by. And in the context of African politics, that's what it tended to mean, consulting people about the form of their domination. And that's really the tradition much more on which um, uh, I think Woodrow Wilson is, is drawing. Um, it's usually mentioned self-determination in connection with him and with the 14 points he declares as the um, points on which the U.S. enters um, the First World War in which it is seeking a settlement for. People overlook the fact that nowhere in the 14 points is a principle of self-determination mentioned. And on the contrary, what it says is that in the peace settlement, um, these imperial powers are going to have to balance their interests with the interests of the subject population. So no principle of independence, no principle that people themselves determine their own future. Rather, you have to fit your own demands into the demands of imperial powers. But what imperial powers have to do going forward is listen to the, what you say about who you would like to rule you or represent you. So in the system of government that was developed for places like the former Ottoman Empire, that took the form of Woodrow Wilson insisting that as Britain and France occupied the countries of the Arab world, um, uh, the actual form of the occupation and which colonial power was going to be occupying should be decided on the basis of consulting the people about their views. You can have a say in your colonial occupation. That was Woodrow Wilson's notion when he finally started using the term of self-determination, at least as it applied in the post-war settlement in the Middle East. Um, it wasn't a principle of, of political freedom uh, the way it ought to be. You write that self-determination was not a problem for imperialism. It was a solution. And exactly. You, you, you point to the case of, of Iraq, where the the British had wanted initially to keep Basra as a port for oil and have a puppet government in Baghdad to control the rest. And ultimately, they po imposed an emir, which is like this cartoonish anachronism in the person of Faisal. Uh, yeah, a king actually. I mean, um, uh, the um, uh, the term emir, which is you know often translated as prince. I mean, some of the more powerful families of the Gulf had had become called emirs, and it had become this term for a ruling family. But uh, actually, across the region, the British decided they wanted something much more modern, 
than than that. So in fact, most of the rulers they put in place or secured in place in um, uh, in Iraq, um, in Jordan, and even in Egypt, they they announced they were kings. They created these hereditary monarchies, which was an institution largely unknown um, in the region, uh, and um, uh, and certainly the idea, the title of king. Uh, was something entirely new, but then of course you know Britain was ruled as a hereditary monarchy, so to Britain this seemed like a nice sort of modern thing to do. Um, <laughs> and we now, but we now attribute these sorts of political forms in the Middle East as coming out of their own, you know, irreparably anti-modern um, tribal sense of tribal backgrounds when they're imposed yeah. by the West. And this was imposed in the case of Iraq against, for example, against um, uprisings and political movements um, that were trying very hard not to have this imposition of a, of, of a British imperial system under a puppet government. Um, uh, but of course, the British had a, a, a new weapon which they put to work whenever people objected which was they had a thing called an air force and they just um, took off and they bombed villages or towns that were objecting to the imposition of this new order on the, the, that, that was put in place. And I would be remiss not to highlight Churchill's uh, fierce advocacy of bombing the, the hell out of Iraqi civilians because the hagiography surrounding that man is just utterly relentless. <laughs> No, well, I mentioned the the book, The Prize, which is the standard heroic history of oil, and in fact, the title is taken from um, Churchill, who who, who claims that uh, that oil of the Middle East is is the great prize that um, he has helped Britain seize in helping um, to uh, the government, the British government, to fund and then take half ownership of the company that becomes BP. So I play with that a little bit because uh, <laughs> uh, it's a rather different story when you tell it uh, differently. That was part one of my interview with Timothy Mitchell an historian and political theorist at Columbia and the author of Carbon Democracy, Political Power in the Age of Oil, from Verso. Watch out for part two of my interview, which I'll post this Friday. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that capitalist production simultaneously undermines the original sources of all wealth, the oil and the workers, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And also, please do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. <laughs>